So do you have a favorite lawyer joke? No. Really? None? Hmm. You must have heard them all. That's I can't think of like one that I'm like, oh yeah. I'm in a position now where I want to take back every one that I've ever made. So I was, I was just hoping that you had one more that I could add to the list. One but, to like uh, get out of your system? Yeah. No, I don't think I can like think of one that I've ever even been like, oh, that's funny. Well, if... <laughs> If one hits you before the end of the show, we'll come back to it in the conclusion. Welcome to wherever you are. Yeah. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada, and you are listening to episode 259 of the Matinee Cast. It's the movie-loving podcast of my movie-loving website, thematinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. It's been a little weird not seeing today's guest out and around. See, she and I first met in 2019, and several times that year, our paths would cross at parties, drinks, or events like Fan Expo here in Toronto. And then just one year after we met, bam lockdown. I know it's not exactly news to open a show by saying that the pandemic has kept a person out of my orbit, but it's just a little bit amusing to me that my guests and I have known of each other for exactly two years, and one of those years has been in the shadow of a pandemic. Weird, right? But I'm excited because she's joining me across the miracle of the internet to talk about film today. She is somebody who you can find all over the place in some really great places. She's a contributing writer at Pajiba, whattowatch.com, and CG Magazine. Lindsay Travis is here. How are you, Lindsay Travis? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right. You know, it's, it was a chilly morning for my walk here in Midtown, and I'm trying to get as much of the walks in as I can before they decide to tell us all to stay home all the time. But yeah. um, but it's a good time. And I mean, Fridays, we're recording this on a Friday, and Fridays for me for like the la- last two or three months have been like Marvel Fridays. I order breakfast from the diner and watch the MCU on TV, and it's it's been a, the, the, probably the brightest spot in my week. Love that. Right. What a wonderful thing. Yeah. I know. Good for I, you getting I, the walks in. Yeah, I, I'm trying. I'm trying. And, you know, like the diner is starting to recognize me by face. And today they said, thank you for your continuing support. I'm not sure if that's Ooh. a good thing or a bad thing. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> That's like right in the heart right now, you know? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) On episode 259, we'll be discussing Shiva Baby. We'll be flipping the record over to play the other side and learning more about Lindsay. This is Know Your Enemy. So Lindsay first appeared on episode 231 where we talked about Joker and I don't know about you, but like I, I've just, that movie's just fallen further and further for me since that conversation and that conversation did not yeah. go well. Yeah, it does feel like a hundred years ago. Right. Um, and it's funny, like I don't even really think that it's like gone downhill. It kind of did what I hoped it would do where it just kind of like went away. Yeah. After we talked about it, it like it entered the awards conversation. And don't get me wrong, I'm I'm happy yes. that it's the, I'm happy that the woman who composed the score was able to land an Oscar out of it because that that's awesome in its own right. But just everything else, like right up to and including its best picture inclusion, I was like, dear God. But anyway, I mean that yeah, was a good episode. Gag. So if um, if you haven't listened to the episode where we talked about Joker, please go go do listen to that because it was a good talk. And uh, we learned on that episode that the first movie Lindsay ever saw in a theater was Disney's Beauty and the Beast. The last film she'd seen at the time was Wes Craven's New Nightmare. The worst movie she's ever seen is The 27 Club. The unseen classic or essential is Raging Bull. And the film she wished she made is Source Code. So it's time for round two. Ms. Travis, what is a film that seemingly everybody else hates, but you dig? 
Okay, so I don't know like if hate is necessarily the word, but it's certainly the one that every time I say I'm a fan of this franchise, everyone tries to throw in my face as like the worst one. Um, and it actually happens to be one of my favorites. I'm going to throw Saw 5 into this conversation. And surprising no one, I'm talking about Saw because it's all I do, especially these days. And yeah, as much as I like don't know that like it's like a it's known as like a hated movie, every time I'm like, oh my God, the Saw franchise is incredible. I love it. Every single movie, it's my favorite. Everyone's like, yeah, but Saw 5 sucks. And I think Saw 5 is maybe my favorite of the franchise. I'm a little bit in the dark because I've only ever seen the first one. Um, I'm, I'm okay. One of these days I might go on a little bender and just decide to watch more of them um why so so bad idea so, <laughs> i'm sure you do i mean we've got spiral coming out right so if ever there was a time yeah. now is the time um <laughs> so the time. let us begin with what is it about saw five that is so insidious for people a fifth in a franchise i think is always where franchises lose people i mean like jason didn't even come back to his own fifth installment uh you know freddy got really wild so i think the fifth one definitely loses a lot of people and um actually there's a really <laughs> not to plug my friend's article if you read the bite from our friend uh edited by our friend Ariel Fisher. Uh, Matt Donato did a really interesting uh, write-up about Scream 5 where he talks about fifth installments and franchises. But I digress. Saw 5 loses a lot of people. People are getting a little bit tired and the traps kind of have to step up their game. In this one, I think people think the traps make less sense and the story makes less sense. Okay. But what Saw 5 really does is it um, it messes with the timeline in my favorite way. So like all the Saw movies mess with timeline. Um like every single one always has something that didn't happen when you thought it did. And what's cool about Saw 5 is that it is an example of that. And I don't want to spoil it for you so you know you haven't seen it, but it it really messes with the timeline in a different way. And I think in like such a cool way that when it happened, I shrieked and the payoff was so, so good. Hmm. And it also fills in a lot of blanks with um, a character named Hoffman who a lot of things happen to Hoffman in part four that seem really out of the blue, but are a really, really, really fun twist. And then five kind of goes back and fills in those blanks via flashback, but not in like an obnoxious flashback heavy way. At least I don't think it gives you this like core story about people that I think audiences didn't care enough about. Um, but I liked it. And then at the same time, it's filling in blanks about Hoffman. And then there's a finale twist that, connects it to four in a really different way than other movies have been connected so far. So like, I think a lot of what people don't like are the things that I think make it so, so special. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I mean, you're making me really curious now, which is saying something because I don't think I really had a whole lot of curiosity of this franchise. Yeah. It's, it's also, I mean, the crazy thing is I, I realize that it's one of these differences between a normal film series other than something like James Bond, but a normal film series and a genre film series that most normal film series, they have a hard time going past a three, you know, let alone into a four mm -hmm. or five. Whereas with genre film series, that is, it's kind of a mark, right? Like you get, you there's, there's series that go up, up into double digits. Yeah. Five is like really where you have to get weird. Like, <laughs> you know, five is when something supernatural happens, when someone replaces the main character. Like in Halloween, it's where you start to get Thorn, Cult of Thorn. And like, that's usually where you kind of have to go off the rails. And I honestly don't think that five does go off the rails at all. Um, I think it kind of just keeps in the same um, themes of three and four. Like, I think it feels really similar to them. Um, and maybe people just got bored of it. I don't know. And then I also think people don't like Hoffman and Strom as much as I do, but I love that Hoffman and Strom. All right. <laughs> and well, maybe that's it. 
I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll certainly keep this conversation in mind when I, when I go down this saw rabbit hole in preparation for a spiral and we'll see how, we'll see if I think that either everybody else is correct or, or you are, uh, you know, seeing something from a very different point of view and I, I got, I'll give you your props. Um, all right, yes. let's flip the script. What is the film that everybody else digs that you don't? Okay, this was hard because, you know, you never want to be the like mean spirited. I hate this movie that everyone likes. Um, and so I dug pretty deep and came up with uh, Halloween 2018. Really? Yeah. Did you like it? Yeah. But I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm not the, I'm, again, I'm not target demographic here. So, mm-hmm. oh, okay, let's, let's dig into this. Okay. Why, why that one? Do you remember the movie Fanboys? I do. Okay. So, you know, it like didn't age super well, but you know, there's like that really uh, hilarious moment at the end. So if you don't know fanboys, um, it's a bunch of Star Wars fans that try to get to the Star Wars prequel, you know, before everyone else and see it early and see it on time um, for reasons that I won't spoil for you. But uh, there's like this bit right before the, um, you know, the lights drop where a character just looks and says like, oh, what if this movie sucks? <laughs> um, and then, you know, that's kind of the... <laughs> <laughs> the right. movie and we all know how the prequels were received um so i kind of had that exact moment i was with um my one of my best friends uh and he's like the biggest halloween fan and that's what we bond about and when we heard that it was coming to tiff we like couldn't believe it and both like cried and then i got tickets and we couldn't believe it and we both cried and we like he came he lives out of town and we had this like big moment we like met up and then they gave us t-shirts on the line and we were both wearing our Halloween t-shirts anyway. And we like went for a drink. We didn't want to have too many drinks. We didn't want to get too tired. And we were just so excited. We got really good seats. And it was like this whole huge moment. And I was like, oh, Hey, what no. if it sucks? And then, <laughs> <laughs> the lights went down and we were watching it. And during the opening scene, I was like, Oh my God. Like right from the like first minute, I was like, Oh no, this movie sucks. And I was so stressed. And then, um, we didn't say anything. And I don't remember exactly what moment it was, but it was probably about halfway through the movie where something happened and both of us audibly went like, Ugh, out loud <laughs> and then like grabbed each other's legs. Cause we were having this, like, neither of us wanted to ruin it for the other person by being a spoil sport. Right. You know, so we were just staying quiet. But then when we both ugh at the same time, it was like, Oh God, we're on the same page. And then we like stayed up all night reading all the like positive tweets while like having a drink in my kitchen. Just like, how, how is this happening? So that doesn't tell you anything about the movie so much as my experience. It just really didn't hit for me on like any point. And I think I could talk about it for a while, its twist didn't work. Its characters made no sense. I think the movie was making fun of Lori way more than it was sympathizing with Lori. Um, so I kind of, even like as they were doing the press later and they were talking about how it was all about trauma and all, I was like, this isn't about trauma. The movie's like making fun of a woman crying and drinking in her car. And just like nothing landed for me at all. And I was really, really surprised that it was so universally beloved. This is one of those things <laughs> where, you know, as, as, properties are passed from storyteller to storyteller i i really feel that it's it's a real difficult path to walk because on the one hand i don't think that every single story is completely beholden to its original storyteller i think there's a lot of stories out there that can evolve and other people can add chapters and add perspective and turn it into something bigger than what the original storyteller thought it might be you know again not to bring it back to the same franchise but like james bond is an example of that and when they started making the recent ones and getting into things like age and legacy i thought that was that was an interesting thing to start adding into like a james bond franchise unfortunately as you add from storyteller to storyteller 
and I'm looking right at you, Star Wars, it doesn't always pan out because not everybody is on the same page or wants to walk that same path. So I think if I'm, you know, if I'm putting myself into your shoes, because it's not like you're telling me that, you know, everything after Carpenter left it is bullshit. It's the the idea that Gordon Green and his team came in and they, they weren't, they weren't on the same path as everybody else was before. And why, you know, like you said, like having that moment right before of what is this sucks, you know, it it was just kind of that quick little premonition of we're about to wander off the path. I'm definitely a purist. Like I'm the person who's like, you know, internally, not that I would like boo a sequel, but I'm internally like, no, leave it alone. I like, like it the way it was. Um, I'm that type. Um, which like, again, I don't parlay that into like, don't make that sequel. I'm just kind of like, ew, I don't want to watch it kind of thing. Um, and, but then there are certain things where like, I look at it and I think you have to, you have to separate things. So like, I love when I watch Halloween, like the first one, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Lori and Michael have nothing to do with each other. You know what I mean? Like they are, they have nothing to do with each other. And I watch Halloween as its own standalone thing. When I watch Halloween two, I'm totally fine to buy into the fact that Lori and Michael are related to each other. And I just like see them as like, and yes, it's a continuation of part one, but I see it as like completely separate entities. And certainly like the movies have played, they've reset the continuity multiple times. So, um, you know, that I guess kind of works with Halloween. So I don't necessarily feel that I'm like, Oh, you know, I dislike Halloween too, because it was not the same path that Halloween took. Um, Cause I do think that like they both work in their own way and you just kind of have to look at them as separate entities and separate versions of the same story. Right. Um, and I don't even, maybe it was that, like maybe it was like the, you know, the style that they brought to it that didn't land for me, but I think I just like really didn't like how they treated Lori. And then I think the like large twist just like truly doesn't, work it supposes that a character was in on something all along but we see her in private conversations on her own actively not being in on it so it just doesn't doesn't hold up that I was just kind of like oh okay (laughs) and then you know I understand that we have to set up sequels but like Lori not sticking around to see what happened to Michael like she spent her whole life planning this and then she just left like okay um (laughs) just like just (laughs) didn't it for me at all Uh, you know again like I don't ask this question to I don't ask this question to dunk on a popular movie I ask I ask this question to gain perspective and that's that's some good perspective Mm -hmm. for all kinds of reasons moving along what is um what was the last movie to make you cry um, I couldn't really think. I'm not much of a movie crier. Um, I mean, when you're watching but, Halloween and Saw 5, I can't imagine but, that the tears are really flowing. <laughs> well, I tend to, yeah, I don't know. I tend to cry at, anyway, unexpected things. But um, I definitely cried recently at Batman Death in the Family, um, which is one of the new animated features, uh, the Batman animated features. And I kind of didn't expect to because, you know, why? But um, if anyone knows Batman Death in the Family, the comic book story, it is the uh, story. Well, it's a death in the family in the comic book. Um, and it's the story where Jason Todd as Robin dies. Um, and it kind of, you know, changes Batman's whole course. So they made um, an animated feature, Batman, Batman Death in the Family. It essentially follows it, but the style is much more Batman under the Red Hood. So the animation looks like the Red Hood story, but it is the story of Death in the Family, which was much more uh, jokey and uh, 70s-ish, 60s, 70s style in the comics. Um, So anyway, all that to say, it's a choose-your-own-adventure Blu-ray where you like make decisions that affect things. And I have to tell you, 
when it asks you if you want to save Robin or not, and you know what's going to happen, it is a very jarring experience that made me cry. <laughs> so you have to like decide to like chase the Joker, try to save Robin, or like, there's no happy endings in this story I mean, situation. So the interesting parallel with that too is that comic book fans back in whatever it was 87 or 88 when that comic dropped they they had to vote on whether or not jason todd was going to live which i mean it's a little bit bonkers to me that an overwhelming majority of of comic book readers were like kill this guy i don't know what was yeah Yeah, i don't know I, i was a little bit too young in the 80s to really understand the mindset of the average comic reader but that feels a little bloodthirsty even if you don't really like a guy like I don't really like Damian Wayne as a character, but I don't think I could ever like cast a vote to kill him. That's an interesting parallel that that exists. And, and yeah, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those weird things where, you know, even though this is something that is, it's done, right? Like there's no, there's no, I mean, it's comics, so there is undoing it. Um, There's undoing everything Mm -hmm. these days. I think it's the whole thing of like, you're asked, like you as a viewer are asked, does this character live or die? Like that is, that's kind of insane. Yeah. So it's like, it's very stressful um, and ultimately very fun. Yeah. If you get the opportunity to uh, try it out, I had a really good time I, I'm, I'm playing it. I think it, I'm going so to I'm have to give that a go. I mean, Lord knows it would distract me enough from what's going on in the, the live action DC universe <laughs> these days. So uh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> Never um, heard of it. No, yeah, um, yeah. What is yeah. Yeah. What, what are these movies you speak of, Ryan? I like it. Thank you. Uh, Lindsay Travis in the movie of your life. Who plays you? Uh, Aubrey Plaza was my first answer. <laughs> I totally see that. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, I don't see it, but I've been told it a few times, but then there's a girl I went to law school with who I get mixed up with all the time. And I think that she looks like Aubrey Plaza. So I'm like, okay, I guess that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I'm going with. I also think that like, she's very funny and super dark, which I think would like totally work with a story of my life. I I think what I really like about Aubrey Plaza is she's really in recent years, like the last two or three years, I like how much she's been able to flex what she's able to do. I worry sometimes about actors getting pigeonholed by one particular character. I I think it's easy to believe that Aubrey Plaza is April Ludgate, you know, because she just does everything Mm -hmm. that April does so naturally that it's like, are you really this cynical? (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, from from what I know of you, you're, you are not, um, but seeing her in movies like Safety Not Guaranteed and even her side character in Happiest Season just like did so much to elevate that story and what was just like a, a really pedestrian story. Like she brought some real humanity into that and actually ended up being far more fascinating than a lot of the primary characters. So, you know, seeing Plaza go on to do some of these kinds of roles and these kinds of movies after breaking through with Parks and Rec, I'm totally here for it. One of her earliest roles that I can think of in movies was in, I'm sure there were more before this that I'm just not thinking of, but just in Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Like she was kind of playing like a ramped up version of April in that movie too. I mean, she's done a lot of cool, weird stuff. Um, if you've ever watched the show Legion, she plays oh, yeah. a really cool character with like like a few different versions of a character so she gets to do a lot of work on that show and it's incredible 
Um, and then recently she was in a movie called Black Bear, which was one of my favorites of 2020. That's a dark movie. Um, and I love she that does. She, she, yeah, yeah. She really she flexes all up and down that movie. All right. I would totally <laughs> um, see Aubrey yeah. Plaza in the Lindsay Travis story. I'm, I'm, I'm totally here for that. <laughs> Last but not least, what are you watching Thank next? You. I am currently uh, covering Evil Dead for my podcast, Pod in the Pendulum. And uh, Evil Dead 2 is next. And that is the most excited I've been about anything we've done ever so i'm really excited to be watching <laughs> evil dead 2 maybe tonight i i mean like you know there there are certainly worse things to do on a friday night um like I'm, I'm not remembering wrong right like evil dead 2 is basically the first one again only bigger so yeah there's like a lot of conversation had about like is it a remake is it a sequel is it a do-over um i think it's very obviously a sequel but like yes in a lot of ways it goes through a lot of the beats of the first one in bigger ways. But if anything, I mean, I think it just kind of like picks up where the last one left off. Um, But it is, they're leaning much more into the comedy styling. So they like in the original um, Sam Raimi uh, who directed, who wrote and directed, he um, was using horror very much inspired by the beats in things like three stooges. Right. And for the sequel, he's very much like, we're going to go bigger on the gore. We got, you know, a little bit more money, a little bit more time. We're going to go bigger on the scenes and we're going to lean even harder into this studio style comedy. Does your podcast have sense. an episode planned to cover the, the live, the, the stage musical? So no, but we talked about it in the first episode. Cause I was the only one who's seen it. What? Um, and we, we considered, I know. <laughs> and we considered it. So the bit of the pod is that we like go through an entire franchise start to finish. Right. Um, and then when we were getting through Evil Dead, we're like, okay, there's technically four movies, but then like three seasons of a show and also a musical. And so we're like, no, we got to stop at the movies. And then we'll just like have some fun mentioning those things throughout. And I think if I were to make this argument, which I'm glad that you mentioned it, because I'm probably going to have to make it next week. Um, because the musical so obviously wraps the three movies into one, mm-hmm. it you can see where it switches from the first to the second in continuity. So I think it's very obviously a sequel. Oh, well, that's a good point. All right. Well, um, I, as I said, like go. that that certainly sounds like a great Friday night. Um, I'm totally down for it. Mm-hmm. So uh, there we go. We will learn more about Lindsay Travis when we get her back for another episode. Um, but we are going to talk, as I said, something we both enjoyed quite a bit. Um, Shiva Baby is uh, our movie of choice. So come on, right back after this. We're going to talk about the new slang. What do you want from me? Why don't you run from me? What are you wondering? What do you know? Shiva Baby is directed and written by Emma Seligman. It stars Rachel Sennett, Molly Gordon, Polly Draper, Danny DeFerrari. There's a great name for you. Fred Malamud and Diana Argan. Shiva Baby is about Danielle, a young woman in that scary ether between college and grad school who's making ends meet as a sugar baby. As we open the film, we get a brief glimpse of her with her sugar daddy. He thanks her for her time and company with cash and a bracelet before sending her off on her way into the hot New York morning. We next catch up with Danielle as she makes her way to a Shiva, a customary Jewish ritual to mourn, support, and comfort the family of the recently departed. There are old friends, there is family, there is a lot of awkward conversation, gossip, and judgment, and of course, there's food. 
Danielle is blown from pillar to post trying to deal with her parents, her parents' friends, members of the community who haven't seen her in months or years and wonder how she's doing. And just for kicks, an old friend named Maya, who happens to happen to be an old flame, is there too. And then there's Max, also at the Shiva, suit, tie, yarmulke, and all, which would be fine if he wasn't also Danielle's sugar daddy who we met in the opening scene. As if that's not anxiety-inducing enough for you, Max's wife Kim arrives with her 18-month-old child in tow, begging the question, who brings a baby to a shiva? Ordinarily, I like to start reviews on this show by posing an opening volley, a random question for my guests under the heading, pop quiz hotshot. Honestly, though, people... This afternoon, I have the foggiest clue where to start. This movie is an absolute clown car of anxiety that crams everything from spilling coffee on your blouse to losing your cell phone into 78 tidy minutes. I have zero idea where to begin with this opus, so I'm handing the keys over and letting you drive, Miss Travis. Pop quiz hotshot, where the hell do we begin with Shiva Baby? Oh my goodness. I don't know. It rocks. I think the thing about Shiva Baby that um, you kind of can't ignore in any discussion is its authenticity. Um, And I think if like you're going to talk about it, you have to, you have to really approach that there are lots of young Jewish women, millennial women and Gen Z women who are not necessarily only women, but um, that watched that movie and like looked over their shoulder to be like, how did she capture my life? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I feel like, I don't know, maybe that's where you want to start per se. This is one of those things that I'm seeing. We've been doing a lot of them this year and a lot of them recently. Um, The, the, films directed by women I've, i'm finding as i go deeper and deeper into my journey of female directors which is not a genre let us get let us make sure that is known there's no such genre as female directed different mm-hmm. perspective that a story that any given story no matter what genre it might be to be told from the one thing i am noticing more and more is a different perspective than what i'm used to especially mm-hmm. when it comes to this particular one where it's obviously told by, you know, from not only a woman's perspective, but a Jewish woman's perspective, you know, like, like you say, like from a certain generation. It's authentic, like to its core, like even there's so many little subtleties that, um, you know, even when uh, her parents pull up and they're arguing over the van and which car they drove to the Shiva is like such a specific thing that so many people <laughs> can probably relate to and laugh about. But where it like turns it up is you know, they're walking into a Shiva, we've got proud parents, and I do definitely want to talk about the parents. Um, We've got proud parents who are still, you know, are still beholden to this very typical um, Jewish expectation for what is successful. Danielle standing with her parents who are supportive, um, not just financially, but like they are supportive of her, have this moment where she has to rehearse her like fake career line. Right. Um, right before she walks into the Shiva. And it's such a specific moment. Why it really stuck out to me is that, you know, her parents don't look at this as like a mean thing that they've done to her, or they don't look at this as, um, you know, disrespecting what she does and who she is. It's very much not intentionally a phony thing that they're doing. It's kind of in the Shiva, we are going to be talking about careers. We are going to be talking about getting married and who's seeing whom and when they're having babies. I want you to be prepared for this conversation so we're all on the same page. And like that very specific thing where it feels very, very negative, but it's actually what they view as very positive 
is just like such a hard moment and you can see it. It's threaded throughout the whole rest of the movie where everyone that Danielle speaks to or her mom speaks to is talking about who's dating whom and is talking about, you know, oh, maybe someone's out can get you a job and all that kind of stuff. And it's just a very interesting thread. And those are the types of things that I think made it really, really authentic and special. Like those, those very lived in moments, like I don't know if it's necessarily Seligman's story, but certainly she was witness to this with, you know, with her girlfriends and and her family, that kind of perspective, whereas if it was somebody who hadn't seen that, they wouldn't have no idea how to write it, let alone how to write it and direct it and, and get that performance so authentic from everybody involved, like not just from Danielle, but also from her parents. Like, you know, you saying like, you want to start with her parents. First of all, I am here for any movie that Fred Melmet is in. That like that man is a treasure. Um, and, <laughs> yes. and, he re- and he really everyone's just, favorite. Yeah, exactly. But you know, even just beyond that, um, Polly Draper as her mom is she's she's asked actually to do quite a lot within this movie. You know, like I feel there's archetypes of the Jewish mm-hmm. mother. Um, you know, and, and I, you know, to, to anybody who is, who's unsure, I am not Jewish. Um, Lindsay is, I I like this kind of conversation because I'm, I'm here to learn. Um, but there are like some things I know from having Jewish friends and family, but there, there, there is an archetype of the prototypical Jewish mother. And there are moments where Debbie is kind of being the typical Jewish mother, but there's also a lot of moments in this movie where she's trying to transcend that stereotype. So yeah, that's definitely something that I really want to talk about. And I mentioned in my review and I actually saw another review mention something similar. What's really cool about her character is that this trope of the stereotypical Jewish mother that very, very much exists and it's very, very real is always really negative. It's something that like I sometimes resent. Like, first of all, my mother who I would laugh as a, you know, quote, typical Jewish mother is like the most lovely, sweet woman in the world. And I think a lot of us would say that about our mothers. You're just so saying even that because she's going to listen like, to this show. Yeah, because she's going to listen and be like, uh, <laughs> and that, that's right. Yeah. Um, and Mrs. Travis. I think a lot of us like, <laughs> yeah. Hi, mom. Um, I think that a lot of us have these experiences with our Jewish mothers where they do, you know, seem to be putting down our jobs and the fact that we're single and how disappointing it is that we're not, you know, married with a bunch of kids. It is a really negative experience. Like it does suck um, to hear those things, especially when it might not be what you want or it is something that you want that you're having a hard time getting. So that's a really negative experience. And I think that really turns into this like over the top parody, which like I feel free to laugh at, but then sometimes I'm kind of like, oh no, this kind of sucks. So, you know, um, shows like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, you know, her mother is just like a horrible, mean, old Jewish mother stereotype. And in uh, Difficult People, her mother is this horrible, mean Jewish mother stereotype. And what I really love about the um, mother in this movie is that she still is a stereotypical Jewish mother. Like she's literally said things that are right out of my mom, my aunts, my cousin's mouths. But she's still a good woman who's very good to her daughter. Right. Um, and is still supportive of her daughter and still loves her. She gets it wrong sometimes. You know, she thinks that she's supporting her by telling her to stop, um, you know, hanging out with her ex-girlfriend, things like that. Um, so she doesn't always get it right. But she's still, like, good-natured and good-hearted and cares about and loves her daughter. And I think that that's something that really, really actually gets lost in a lot of Jewish mother stereotype characters. Um, and I found this character to be more real. Like, she's transcending the trope but being more authentic in that way because, um, you know, a lot of these, like, Crazy Jewish mothers are actually 
you know, that's they're sweet women who care about their children. And I think that this movie does a really good job of grounding that. That was something that like really, really stuck out to me. I think one one of the things I really like is you mentioned in your review um, the feeling of can we just go already? Um, which everybody, mm. you know, no matter what your background is, no matter what event you're at, like everybody has felt that at some way, at some point in their life, when you're just at something where you are not in it and you really would rather just leave, but you have to stay for a while because of like propriety and manners and all that jazz. I think what I do like about Debbie is that she can see earlier than the moment of crisis that Danielle is really not having it with this entire Shiva. And she actually mm-hmm. does want to get her out of there. Like there there's, there's at least two times where Debbie is like, I'm going to get your dad and we're going to go. And unfortunately just it, yep. you know, shit just happens. I did love before we get to that moment where everything goes spectacularly wrong, that Debbie is already recognizing within her daughter that this is just not the day for any of this and is really just tap dancing on her last anxious nerve. I I think it would have been far easier to write Debbie as, no, we're not going yet. It's only 12 o'clock or whatever time it happens to be. Just go get some more food and we'll be fine. And don't bother me again. You know, I think Debbie Mm -hmm. recognizing that, you know, and, or even just her saying things like, you know, I was in New York in the eighties, my gaydar is strong as a bull, you know, like, like things like that. I, I kind of feel it's, it's a, it's a much better and I think modern take on this, on the Jewish mother. Yeah. Like I, I mean, I loved it. I even like, I laugh at bits of crazy ex-girlfriend, but I was watching like, you know, one of the mother's songs and I showed it to my mom to be like, you know, a few people, a few of my friends sent this to me. They think it's funny. And she was so insulted. <laughs> She's like, is that how you think I am? And I was like, no. And there are moments. So the song specifically, it's like, there's a song, a crazy ex-girlfriend where um, her mother arrives like from the airport and she's like asking where the bathroom is in her apartment and then makes fun of the bathroom. But then she's saying all these like horrible mean things. And the reason why I think it's funny is like my mom won't use the bathroom in my condo. She just like won't. And I don't know why, like, as if she like my condo is like spotless and whatever, but it's just like a thing. So I was like, Oh, that's funny. Cause that's like you, but then I'm like, no, but you're not like this woman at all. And so, um, I don't like begrudge or resent that stereotype. I think it's funny and I definitely have laughs at it, but I love how this much is much more a really lovely, good mother who sometimes does hilarious Jewish mother things that you want to make fun of. I think it's just like such a great and refreshing take on that character. It like really, really stood out to me. Definitely. And then, you know, we, we've kind of skipped right over the titular Shiva baby, which, by the way, I, I gotta say, I feel a special level of embarrassment that I've known about this movie now for... I'd say at least six months. And just this week, did it occur to me that Shiva baby was a play on sugar baby? So oh, it took me a really long time to notice that. I okay. Notice I don't, don't feel so bad. All right. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Solidarity. Wonderful. I didn't get it at all. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. So the sugar baby slash Shiva baby, um, Danielle, she's asked to do a lot, like just the nature of her not knowing where her next uh, step in her life as, as happens to a lot of us at that age. Um, yeah, that, like that, that would be bad enough. And then to drop that into a Shiva would be bad enough. But then when you add into it, the, the added complexities of Maya, her, her ex, you know, her partner, her friend slash ex partner, mm-hmm. um, and Max showing up at the same Shiva, she's asked to do a whole lot, like without really going off the handle. Like there's a lot of times where one of the things I love this movie does 
is it it lets conversations happen around her and the camera just kind of lingers on her facial expression and body language and mm-hmm. she does this amazing job of really letting us know like how that key is being twisted in her works and just how wound up she's getting over these conversations it's amazing what a real thing yeah. <laughs> like like haven't we i mean well i shouldn't say haven't we all haven't we all been a young woman at a shiva um <laughs> but having lived that experience and just where you're you know there's a lot of times where she's kind of like tapping her heel, you know, like bouncing up and down or she's kind of like biting the inside, like, you know, clenching her jaw and her eyes are bulging and she's hungry and she has to go to the bathroom or she goes to the bathroom and doesn't have to go, but she just wants to stare at the wall for a minute with no one else in there. Like that's so real. And like, you're exactly right. So many conversations happen around her and to her while she just lives it. And it's so, so strong. (laughs) So strong. It's incredible because you know, anybody could really perform this big. Like I, you know, I, I feel like anybody could really wig out in these moments and turn it into kind of slapstick. And, and, and there are a lot of times where, you know, the comedy gets physical where, you know, she gets like a full cup of coffee dumped on half her blouse. Those kinds of moments are really, you know, amazingly comedically timed, but there's all these other moments. Like, I mean, even just the first moment where she sees Maya across the street And Mm -hmm. she's having that oh shit moment that we've all had when we run into somebody we don't want to run into in 100% the wrong place, right? Like you just have Mm -hmm. to kind of watch that wash over her face. Not to mention the fact that that's about to get doubled down inside when she runs into her sugar daddy and, you know, sees him across the room and is like, who is that? And why is he here? Like these moments that, that Senate puts into her performance are just beautiful and subtle in all the best ways. We, we touched already on Seligman's direction. Again, I kind of feel like that gets down to the, the lived-in nature of her story. This is um, the cool thing about this, this movie is it's actually her second pass at it. She did it as a short, which I haven't seen. I do want to track it down. But I, you know, and this movie itself isn't very long. It's like 75 minutes. I love that this story is something that she's able to come to from a perspective of knowledge and put into everything from like not just Danielle and her parents, um, and Maya and Max, but all these other kind of like tertiary characters who are kind of around the Shiva. Like, you know, I feel like those are all people who she's interacted with and she's put them there very deliberately. Yeah. Looking around the room, the tropes exist. Like I, (laughs) and not even tropes, I shouldn't even say, I guess maybe more archetypes, but like, you know, every conversation that's had, I can like picture which ones of my cousins I would be placing in those roles, you know, (laughs) you know who you are. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Or like which of your neighbors or which of your parents' friends, or I mean, even this is like the the, the thing I love about this Shiva is it's not even really a family shiva like there's that question on the way in she's like who died who died (laughs) you know it's that thing where you're at an event really for your parents kind of for the community you don't really have to go because it's not somebody you really knew but you're going out of support and propriety so those people who you're going to run into 
this is like the one place where you're really going to run into them outside of like temple. Yeah, that's another huge piece of this puzzle is like, what is a Shiva and how does it function? And it really is, you know, a function of community support. And like, there's so much we could talk about them for hours and what they mean and how they work and whatever, but creates this like this function of like something that everybody goes to. It's about supporting the community. It's not necessarily your family, you're going to see people you know. And what's weird, and I think that like people externally, what they find really weird about Shivas is how um, removed they are from the actual person who passed um that very often you know you're just having conversations with like distant relatives or people you haven't seen since school um you know over a bagel where you like don't even interact with any of the mourners or anything like that and it feels kind of bizarre in that way but that's really the point is Mm -hmm. that it's about this like community support where everybody's just kind of hanging out and being relaxed and and you know coming together to stop and pray at the certain times you know twice a day essentially Um, and you're just really there to like create this warm sense of community. And I think that the movie does a good job portraying that. And it's funny because like, you know, Jews, we tend to have that like dark humor response to things where it's funny to have her be like, who died? Cause that seems like such a silly, disrespectful thing. Like what a hilarious ordeal that you don't even know who died, but like, that's it. Like, that's the point, you know? Yeah. And (laughs) And I think it just like portrays it really well. And I mean, the thing that I love, too, is that it's a really complicated answer, too. It's not even like it's your it's your uncle George. It's like it's mm-hmm. Uncle George's second wife's daughter. I, I'm getting that completely mm-hmm. wrong. But that's the thing. It's like three degrees removed is who actually died. So the fact that Danielle is there, it's, you know, she's like you say, like she's really doing that part of the community where it's not exactly somebody in her orbit or even in like her secondary or tertiary orbit. She's like, I'm just, I'm here because you told me to be here. It's, it's crazy because for a tiny comedy um, about like one, one, one young woman's early adulthood crisis, this movie does an amazing job of introducing stakes. Like, we are both fans of like these big franchise films where we're less worried about the stakes. Like we talked about earlier on in this show about how a character can be killed and be brought back to life. No problem. This is a movie where in walks her ex lover and then in walks her current lover and then in walks the, the Shiksa princess with a baby. And, and it just keeps on like adding tiles onto this Jenga tower that has no business in a movie like this, which might be what makes it so special. Yeah. And it's funny because obviously this is an extremely complicated situation to have her like ex-girlfriend and, you know, her married sugar daddy. Um, That might feel like a total extreme, but it is again, a very real experience that these people all walk into the room and you're like, Oh God, like I went on one date with that guy eight years ago. You know, are we going to have to talk about it? Is anyone going to ask? All of those moments. And so it is like really real and not like, oh God, wait, Rachel, your whole body be like, oh great, this fucking guy. Uh, Oh gosh. There Um, it is. (laughs) Oh great. It's funny because I was like, oh, I never say that. So that's not going to be an issue. The Fisher Clause Um, has just been Um, enacted. Wonderful. uh, It's fantastic that into this story, you get everything from like, when is the phone going to be found to when is the Shiksa princess going to find out to when is anybody else going to find out? Like, cause that's the thing is they come up with this quick lie that she knows Max from Shul, but it, you know, which mm-hmm. then kind of gets pulled at later on. It's like, wait, where do you know him from? And, and all of it is just like, you know, in this very small house in these very close quarters, you're wondering just which of these bombs 
is going to go off. You know, on, on the surface, you would think that the greatest disruption to this Shiva would be the baby. Uh, and yet, you know, really and truly, the baby is kind of the least of the problems. Uh, funny that you mentioned the house. The house is also so specific that, you know, these houses from the 50s, 60s, where they're not very big, but their size is just like a bunch of small rooms. Yeah. Um, and like, that's a really common thing and something you really experience at Shiva's where it's like a bunch of small rooms. So everyone's flooded into them. And like, where do you go for air? And it's always the like one bathroom right. that everyone's using. Um, and yeah, that just creates like such a sense of like tension and angst where like, you know, she can go to the other room that that guy's not in. But like when Max uh, shows up, there's that like little melee of them all in the front lobby of the house where everyone's kind of standing a little bit sideways, stuffing themselves through the front door, still wearing their coat, looking for where to put it. And that whole bit of like, where you're looking at your shoes, like, do I take them off? Do I throw them in this pile? Do I just keep wearing them? Cause who cares? And all of those thoughts kind of, maybe that's just me because I lived it, but like that, like frantic pile of thoughts that happen just as you enter the front door. Mm -hmm. Um, and it captures that so well by using like the architecture and who shows up and when like, uh, Maya is already there kind of sitting there having a snack pretty comfortably in a back corner. Um, and then, you know, you, but like there's a small room where the food is and then the small kitchen and then the small dining room and like all these small spaces that everyone's shoved into, um, even though it's a big house. And that I feel like really helped raise the stakes. Oh, totally. Yeah, because that's the thing is like not only do you have the the sugar daddy and the baby and the shiksa princess and, you know, the overall question of what Danielle is actually doing with her life that can get like, you know, unveiled at any moment that she really doesn't know. You mm-hmm. also jam it into this space that's not nearly big enough for any one of those problems, let alone all five or six. There's so much in this movie that I think, again, makes it really, really authentic, which I know I've used the word authentic to describe it throughout this conversation and all over my review. And a huge part of that is little subtleties in the phraseology and the conversations that people have. So you mentioned the part where, um, you know, her mother talks about like her gaydar is strong as a bull. Um, And that conversation and those conversations are really funny because there's certain phrases like the one that I laughed at was like, doesn't have a pot to piss in because I've never heard anyone except a Jewish mother use that phrase before um but it's something that's so used and like lobbed as like an insult as people at people were like oh you know marty acts like such a big macher with his fancy car but he doesn't have a pot to piss in it's like such a specific insult and there's so many little moments like that that i feel like are looking right at me (laughs) you know what i mean um And then just that general feeling of angst, like, again, we talked about, you know, her mother trying to get her out of there and what that feels like. And I think there's a really interesting blanket of angst that Jews are really, really used to carrying around with them all the time. And um, we'll talk about it a bit when we talk about companion. I know that we, you know, you chat about like what would make a good double feature with this. And I'm probably going to talk about this more, but there's this blanket angst that we kind of carry through our interactions that actually feels really comfortable and at home for us, where a lot of external observers are like, oh my gosh, that made me so stressed out. And I think that's the thing that's like hard to describe to someone that like this anxiety ridden feeling of how Danielle goes throughout the house. Like I felt it, but I also didn't feel stressed watching it because it just felt very familiar and comfortable to me. And those are certainly the, that's something that I don't think um, you can really explain to someone who hasn't lived it their whole life. Um, but another bit that I think a lot of people 
miss because I actually didn't see it talked about a lot was um, how Danielle experiences food and how people talk about her body. Yeah. And I think we talk about um, the thing about food and bodies. um, You know, we could chat about that uh, at length for all people and all women um, for sure. But there is a really interesting way that uh, Jewish women specifically talk about bodies where um, Jews are very food focused people. I think you can say that about a lot of different cultures, but we're very food focused and the, way we look at women's bodies and I don't, I don't want to like overgeneralize here, but specifically Danielle's experience is that like Danielle is thin and everyone is pawing at her and calling her thin, but everyone is still also judging what she eats and how much. And again, I don't think this is like specific to Jews and it's also a generalization at the same time, but it comes from this like weird combination of this like jealousy. So we see that when, um, Danielle hates um, Max's wife because she's like tall and skinny and that's like not what Danielle will ever look like. And so she hates her and thinks she's basic looking and makes fun of her appearance. So there's this like combined jealousy and then other women who feel judged about what they eat will project and be like, oh, so you must just not eat anything. And if you notice, people always talk about Danielle eating as as if it's a bad thing, her not eating as if it's a bad thing. So what do you do? Just sit around all day and you don't eat um, and make fun of her for not eating, uh, which comes from this weird place of jealousy sometimes. And then they're pawing at her body, calling her so skinny. But then when she's about to eat, she's actually like nervous about eating and like scrapes food off of her plate, puts it on her plate. And there's just like this weird disaster of like how we talk about bodies and food that I think, again, like I I don't really like know the best way to describe it, but it's a more general thing. And it also isn't fair to say that it's a specifically Jewish thing for all Jews. But I also think that like there is a way, a specific way that we talk about food and bodies that I think the movie does a really good job of portraying. Well, the crazy thing about it that now that you pointed out to me is that how much it keeps coming back to that, because I mean, first of all, like her mother at one point describes her as looking like Gwyneth Paltrow on food stamps and not in a good way. Like that, that's the whole quote, yeah. um, which I right. mean, there's a good way uh, for starters. Number one, number two, when she first starts talking to Maya at the, at the Shiva, like Maya even underlined, she's like, you can't just like show up at the Shiva and skip the service. Like that you're, you're going straight to the after party and that leads to her like starting to put the food back, which, you know, which Mm -hmm. is like, you know, way to take something awkward and make it more awkward. But one of the things I love now that I think about it is when she later on finally has her moment of clarity with Maya in this driveway in between the two houses, which that was another detail I loved because like I, mm-hmm. I've walked up and down that driveway in those kinds of houses around Toronto and like the older neighborhoods. I've walked yeah. up that driveway where the, where the neighbor's house is that close. When she has it out with Maya and they kind of settle their, their, their differences for a minute, as she's walking back into the house and she's in a, a slightly better place, she shoves something into her mouth, like defiantly. She just like grabs something uh, nearby and just stuffs it right down. It's like, okay, that's that's a nice indicator of what kind of headspace we're in now. This film seems to be talking about the modern experience too, because let's not underplay the fact that the reality of the the younger generations and specifically the the young the women of the new generations of of millennials and to a lesser um extent gen x and certainly to to zoomers um is that the the reality and the possibilities have changed right that our parents they went through a very regimented set of steps you went to school you got married you had kids you, you know you got the house in the in like a very specific order but we're now in this world where so many more things are not only possible, but even just quite livable. And 
I feel like one of the things this movie wants to kind of underline is how hard that is for an older generation to grasp, let alone a traditional older generation. It's actually really an interesting one because, and I don't want to slip into, you know, a three hour long history lesson, but I think what a lot of people get wrong about traditional Jewish values is where they came from and why they were so important to our grandparents' generation. Mm -hmm. Um, So certainly like many of our grandparents were immigrants Um, Not all of them, but many of them. Some of our parents were immigrants, some of our great-grandparents. Some, obviously, of our generation can also be immigrants. I think that what gets really lost in that conversation is that a lot of the immigrants, our grandparents, and even our parents' ages, uh, so, you know, boomers and those and their parents, weren't allowed to pursue a lot of things in Canada and the United States. Um, So they weren't allowed in law schools or med schools and, you know, They had to do a lot of their, you know, praying in secret um, and things like that. So I think that that really gets lost in discussion about like, oh, there's so many Jewish doctors and lawyers. You know, we tend to have those both negative and positive discussions, but we really lose the fact that a huge reason why uh, Jewish grandparents push their children um, who are now Jewish parents into these fields was because they weren't allowed to before. Right. Um, And so it was like such a huge honor to be able to do these things. So those traditional values kind of come from something that these immigrants wanted that they couldn't have and wanted their children to have. So that really created, and again, I'm not like a historian, um, but I think that really created this, this trickle down of like, we're traditional and now we can have these great things and you should have them too. Um, And so as a result, you know, there's a lot of about carrying the bloodline, um, but there's also just like the traditional values and what is good. So yeah, there's so much to that, um, that too, we tend to look at the millennials and Gen Z is like such a radical change from these traditional values. But in a lot of ways, those traditional values were like very specific to one generation in that it was traditional values that are now open to. So like the career goals and things like that were not necessarily a new thing, but that's kind of what sparked it in boomers. Does that make sense? It does. I I mean, like, yeah, it's just like what you're saying, like it wasn't along with the fact that it wasn't necessarily what is expected because of certain traditions in certain realities, it just wasn't there. Right. Like, I mean, you got to go, you don't have to go back that far to find very limited career options for women. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like that, mm, that right. kind of thing. So the fact that a, a young woman, Danielle's age can be confused, like, you know, her, her parents and her grandparents never were confused because, you know, you had door number one, door number two, door number three, or door number four, which were you going through now? She, because of where we're at, she has so many more doors to potentially go through and get confused about which one she wants to go through. And the older generations, along with the fact that they want to preserve a tradition, they just, it, it wasn't their reality. So they're having a little bit of trouble gleaning onto why anybody could be confused. It's so interesting to see, like, it's such a different struggle. Like for the more senior generation, it might be like, you have all these options, you can do all of these things where it's like, you know, if you're a millennial or a Zoomer, you're like, I have all these options and I don't, you know, I can't really do anything yeah. because of these five reasons. Yeah, and yeah. Like, it's such a like different struggle. Um, like Danielle's life is certainly not more... Um, easy because of her options and opportunities. It's obviously very difficult as it's like portrayed. So yeah, it's a very confusing thing. And I think, yeah, it just goes to show you like how the traditions trickle down and also like what it means in each generation's different struggles. Yeah. And I mean, and that's, that's the thing. Like I would never look at somebody like Danielle and think that she's, 
like complicated or messy or, or, or like wasting time or opportunity. She just, you know, she's at that moment where a lot of us have been, where she just doesn't know exactly what she's going to do next week. And unfortunately, you know, this week happens to be a Shiva. Yeah. And those things are happening at like different ages for people. I mean, again, looking at our generation and what, you know, things like, you know, my parents were married with three kids by the time they were my age, which like is bizarre and an impossibility for me. Like, it just doesn't make sense that that would be. So yeah, these things really change. So if you look at someone like Danielle's age should be, you know, married with her baby. And of course, that's what makes it so hard to stare down the barrel at Max and his wife, because they are that ideal, right? Like they did it, but she's a shiksa, so it's not good enough. But like, you know what I mean? Like, they are that ideal. And it's, very confusing for her. Yeah. And then, I, I mean, know. Yeah. The, you know, one of the last things I want to touch on before we, we go is Max, because I feel like Max kind of gets away scot-free in most of this movie. Like he's put mm. into an uncomfortable position on several occasions, usually when the conversation turns towards how he and Danielle know each other. But it's, it's one of these things that I feel really underlines the 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 different roles within this kind of relationship is here's danielle doing mental gymnastics in the face of her parents and her ex-partner about getting outed as a sugar baby like let alone at at a at a shiva just full-on getting outed as a sugar Mm -hmm. baby and meanwhile there's max who's more or less playing it cool and just kind of trying to deflect things away from his wife you know that he's the one who also happens to be involved i think that this movie is quietly indicative of the judgment that we put on men and women in these kinds of relationships yeah i agree max does get away with murder i think there's really the implication that um his wife knows and what that's gonna mean but without ever saying it like they have these like cryptic conversations Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He's in trouble. And it's funny, like almost circling back to what you said about like, you know, what others might have missed. And obviously um, her character is not Jewish and that's really the point of it. But there's certainly something in the Jewish community about um, the quiet gossip and keeping things quiet and not sharing the bad things with each other um, because, you know, God forbid there's judgment for it. Um, and I could totally see that if it turned out that Max was a cheater and as a result, their relationship was in trouble, that wouldn't be something that you would hear about until years later. Right. Um, and it would be like something that like was buzzed about quietly. So I almost like you're watching the movie and, you know, without spoiling it, you spend so much time hoping for this like big blowout. Like you're really hoping for this moment. Like and it, you get there, the part with the baby, you get there where you're expecting Danielle to be like, yeah, anyway, your husband pays me to sleep with him. You know, you're expecting that big moment to happen, but it doesn't. And I almost took that as like a really awesome, subtle way of being like, she knows she's dealing with it and no one at the Shiva is going to know about it for years, but they're going to whisper about it behind their back. I totally believe that because I mean, the other, the other thing that's, that's kind of spelled out quite clearly is that, you know, speaking of not having a pot to piss in, that's Max. Like Max is this kind of guy who doesn't really have a great job and has expensive taste and it all kind of falls onto Kim is the character. We've been calling her the the, the Shiksa princess right. this whole time. Um, it, it, it really all <laughs> falls onto Kim's shoulders to afford her husband this, you know, comfortable lifestyle. And yet, meanwhile, he, you know, even though that she is, as Maya puts it, like the ideal in terms of what a lot of women would strive to be, he's still looking elsewhere 
to get his kicks and and not only looking elsewhere but in an arrangement where the person he's having his dalliances with is getting a financial gain out of it it's i mean when i say all of that out loud into one long sentence i'm like this guy's a shit yeah he sucks and i think like what's cool is that like danielle feels like no comfort in the fact that he still wants her even though he's with the quote perfect woman yeah you know there's no part of her that's like you know she's competitive with her but she's never like yeah well your husband wants me that doesn't make her feel good about herself it makes her feel kind of crappy which i also think is a is an interesting thing that i liked yeah i mean i mean that's the thing is like you can see that danielle has a moral compass like the second that she finds out he's married i I really get the feeling that he was hiding that really really well The Mm -hmm. the, the second she finds out that he's married you can already see the guilt wash over her and that she's going to have a lot of soul searching to do let alone the fact that it gets upped and upped and up to he's with this really pretty woman who treats him really well and they have a young child you get the idea that she's been with him for most of this child's life it, it all really weighs on her in a moral way that I think really spells out who she is as a person. We end For every sure. uh, review here on the matinee cast with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible that if you could take away from this movie and keep, you would. Um, Lindsay Travis, if you could keep something from Shiva baby, what would you take? Oh my gosh. I don't know because that house was like such a stressful collection of all the things <laughs> I don't want. <laughs> that i was like i don't want anything in there honestly this is maybe absurd but the whole time i was watching it i was like hell yeah give me that bagel and cream cheese and i know that they actually um did for like some of the like press stuff they sent out bagels and cream cheese to a few people and i was like that's what i want i want that bagel and cream cheese it looked really Um, good which i can get yeah i can get it right now yeah totally it's (laughs) i mean the the movies the movies food stylist really deserves uh a lot of praise because they made all the food look really good i i mean i i got a a quick glance at one of the rugolas that they had on the table i was like it's been ages since i've had good rugola i could really go for one of those right now so i'm gonna i'm gonna piggyback on your idea and say that i want i want some rugola um we rate here on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars Lindsay travis what do you give ml seligman's shivit baby three and a half three and three quarters yeah i'm on i'm on three and a half as well it's a fantastic movie it does a lot of things really well it's not going to set the world on fire for the type of movie it is for a comedy for a coming of age movie it does a lot of things really really well and and far better than a lot of its contemporary movies do yeah so there we go three and a half out of four for from both of us um maybe you agree maybe you disagree let me know ryan at matinee.ca twitter where i'm matinee underscore ca or facebook.com slash dark matinee what do you think of emma seligman's shiva baby we are going to be right back after this and talk about some more movies so uh take a quick break and we'll see you on the other side She's Lindsay. I'm Ryan. We've been talking about Shiva Baby uh, for a while. We're both, uh, our anxiety has both risen. We're both very hungry. Do not want to go anywhere near one of those old European houses that such things take place in. Um, This is the part of the show where we talk about other movies, further movies, uh, further reading that you can do after seeing a movie like Shiva Baby. Uh, Why don't you get us started, Lindsay? What is one of the movies you thought of that a person could go on to after watching Shiva Baby? So there's a few like obvious ones and my second one will probably be pretty obvious, but the first one I'm going to start with is a movie called Happy Times. Okay. 
Um, so Happy Times is, is really, uh, it's kind of billed as a horror comedy. I don't know that it's like horror per se, but it certainly has its like horror comedy in its DNA. Um, it's a little bit different because it is Israeli. It's uh, Sephardic versus Ashkenazi Jews. So the culture is a little bit different. Um, but it is essentially over a family dinner that gets out of hand. So it's like a lot of people in one house. It's a very big house and not as many people as a Shiva, but it's a big family dinner with, um, you know, a lot of Jews that happen to be very hot headed. And it just like goes off the rails very slowly. Just like absurd things keep happening one at a time. Um, it's been called like Tarantino-y by a lot of people. I don't really think that that's it. If you're looking for a Tarantino-y type of movie, this will kind of uh, fit the bill. But it's just in the very same way, very unapologetically Jewish, very, very authentic. um, And it's a lot of people stuffed in a house and it's super anxious and tense until things completely bubble over. And I think that that, while this one is much more bloody and there's a lot more knives involved, um, it's still... It's still very much in the same vein. It's from like a year ago, right? Yeah. It was directed by a guy named Michael Mayer. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, who co-wrote it with a guy named Guy Al. And like, I also, one of the um, leads, the woman who's in the poster, yep. um, Raz Hamami, um, is so funny. I want to see her in every horror comedy for the next 20 years. <laughs> she's <laughs> so good. And she's the like matriarch in the story. Like, um, People are all around the same age. She's not, but it's like her house. It's her home um, that hosts this, her and her husband. And she's just so, so funny. And there's like really specific moments that, again, never making fun of Jews, but like there's a part where someone's like trying to escape and she's like very freaked out and like in the car with like blood all over her. And Laraz's character is like carrying a bloody knife, but brings her like the leftovers out to the car. And it's like, you are always welcome in my home. Come back anytime, you know, (laughs) while she's like handing her leftovers through the car window. And it's just like, yes, oh my God, so funny and so very much that like bizarre twist on the uncomfortable anxious family dinner that uh we've come to expect i have not seen this movie <laughs> no. but i totally need to track it down uh well my first choice for fun. another side my it's it's kind of an obvious choice and i think we brought it up actually i know we've brought it up on this show before um quite some time ago though uh but my my first instinct was to go to um the coen brothers um a little about 12 years ago um a serious man starring michael stuhlborg um one of the most Jewish movies I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and I say that with deep love and affection, which is to say, and, and Fred Malamud is in this movie as well. Um, I, my experience with this movie was going to see it in a theater in Midtown Toronto, which is, it kind of just it stems off of where uh, a large part of Toronto's Jewish community calls home. Um, I went to see it in a reasonably full theater and I knew there were jokes that were flying right over my head by the laughter that was happening in the audience. I'm like, I'm just not getting this, but I'm, I'm amused anyway. Um, it, you know, it's, it's a story that's not really about any one thing except for this so-called serious man having a midlife crisis and a series of things going wrong all at once. Um, I, I, it's weird because even though it's a Coen brothers movie and I mean, it was up for best picture of the year that it was released. I feel like it's really underseen. Yeah. I think it is pretty yeah underseen for sure. Um, but I feel like, you know, if, if somebody walked away from Shiva baby and they thought I want more, um, this is a way to take that kind of, um, love and absurdity and culture and anxiety and stretch it out into two hours. Mm-hmm. What else you got? 
Uh, my second one might be uh, kind of obvious, but um, Uncut Gems is my second, which I think Uncut Gems is certainly compared to A Serious Man pretty often. Um, the reason why I bring up Uncut Gems, which is obviously a very, very different movie. Um, it's, you know, the notoriously anxious story that Adam Sandler, um, Adam Sandler's character is in a quite a bind. He's kind of a shyster jewelry dealer cheating on his wife and dealing with a whole big mess and very, very different movie. Very, very different subject. The reason why I think they're really similar is because I was talking earlier about that, like blanket anxiety that Jews kind of find comfort in and not necessarily comfort, but it just feels familiar and normal. Right. Um, I went to see uncut gems. I actually went with my parents uh, to a TIFF uh, light box screening and all I'd heard about how I was like, oh my God, it's so anxious. You're going to be so anxious the entire time. This was anxiety inducing, anxious, anxious mess. Oh my God, oh my God. And it was like so hyped that way. And when I watched it, I was like super calm and zen and didn't feel any <laughs> angst at all. <laughs> and I kind of came out of it like, oh, I don't think that, um, you know, Jews have the same experience with this movie as non-Jews. And I actually like posted a tweet um, about it when it came out where I just was like, basically that, you know, people seeing non-Jew seeing that movie, like, oh my gosh, it's so anxious, blah, blah, blah. And then like Jews seeing it. And it was just like the Larry David, very calm. Okay. <laughs> um, and all my replies were just, Jews being like, right. It was so relaxing. <laughs> like I know. <laughs> um, so I feel like that was a really similar thing in Shiva baby where like a lot of people would watch it and be like, what an anxious movie. I'm so intense and uncomfortable. And a lot of my friends, when they were watching it, were texting me to be like, this movie is so cringy. I can barely get through it. It's so hard to watch because it's so anxiety inducing is where I was like, oh, no, this is like a very comfortable, familiar thing for me. So I feel like that experience with Shiva Baby was really similar to the experience with Uncut Gems, which is why I think they're very similar. Um, it's funny that you actually mentioned Uncut Gems and mentioned the, the, the tension that a lot of people came away from it from because part of why I couldn't come up with an opening volley and opening pop quiz hotshot for our review of Shiva Baby is I realized where I was originally going when I was kind of writing my notes was exactly where I went when I wrote my opening volley for Uncut Gems. <laughs> when we recorded a podcast mm -hmm. about Uncut Gems, I compared it to curry vindaloo, like a food that's really abrasive and is just like really hot and really, you know, just not always pleasant, but some people like still really enjoy. And I'm like, I don't always understand why somebody would really enjoy that. And yet I, you know, I, I enjoyed the experience of uncut gems. I enjoyed the experience of Shiva baby. And yet at the same time, I'm like, I don't know who I'd recommend this to because in both cases, it's, you know, it's going to leave you in bits. Um, so no, that's a, that's a yeah. fantastic comparison. I mean, I think some people might need some, some water and Xanax after the, after the double feature is over, depending on which <laughs> order they put it in. Um, but that's where I'm like, they wrapped up so well. And yeah, you're, yeah. You're like ready to go for wine afterwards. The, my next movie that I wanted to pair it up with, it's not amazing, but I feel like it's got interesting pieces. Um, it's a movie from three years ago by Carly stone called the new romantic. Have you seen this movie? I'm not. Okay, so it stars um, Jessica Barden, who most people would probably recognize from the television series The End of the Effing World. And um, mm -hmm. she's a college student um, who decides to become a sugar baby herself. And she's an aspiring journalist. So as she's living out the relationship, she's also documenting it for her college paper and kind of like making her bones and making her her play for her next career step 
by documenting this relationship. Um, I find it fascinating because I just, I find the whole notion of sugar daddies and sugar babies um, fascinating in their own right. I, I don't say that as somebody who has ever participated or who has plans. Um, <laughs> yeah. I just, I just find it interesting as kind of this play on the world's oldest profession that it can be about more than strictly physical companionship that it can actually be about emotional companionship and that it can be this weird two-way street. Um, the new romantic, it's a little messy in places. And I kind of feel like if it could got an, if it could get another pass by Carly stone, that maybe she might clean up a few things, but watching Jessica Barden in this movie and how she navigates you know, the moral question and what some of her, like, you know, word starts to get out to some of her college classmates about what she's doing or not even what she's doing, but because she's writing kind of like sex in the city under a pseudonym, but like what the pseudonym is doing. So she overhears like what we were saying, like how people speak about somebody who's got a sugar baby on the side, you know, within the Jewish community, she hears it. She overhears it like whispered, but not about her, but within her presence. And it's, it's this really kind right. of interesting look into, into that life and into that dynamic. Interesting. Okay. It's, yeah, it's got some bumps. It's not perfect, but I, you know, I, like I, I do like these interesting messes that have something really, really um, real at their core. And I do feel that the new romantic has something very real at its core. Um, do you have any more? Um, I was also thinking of obvious child. Oh yeah. Which again, I think I'm, yeah, I think it was the obvious one. The only reason why I mentioned it, I think they're really, really different movies. Um, but I think the obvious child is also still the kind of like anxious young woman experience, um, as a Jewish woman that I think is also probably on par. Like as I was watching it, I saw a lot of like obvious child and a lot of, um, I don't think it's similar, but I also kind of felt broad city in it. It's got those like that generation of like young Jewish women comedians is definitely in the DNA of this movie. I, you know, I will never shy from a chance to talk about Obvious Child. That was one of the best movies I saw that year that still stands for me as one of the best modern uh, romantic comedies. Um, Jillian Robespierre just knocked that movie out of the park. And I feel like it's kind of drifted away a little bit too quickly. I was kind of hoping that it would enter the new canon um, in terms mm. of in terms of movies um, from this from this generation, um, it's another one of those movies that talks about things that aren't often talked about in movies. That to me speaks from a very um, lived in place. You know, like I, I don't know if this was Jillian Robespierre's reality, but if not, it certainly was something that happened to her friends or her sisters or her mother or cousins or that kind of thing. Like. It's an it like like we were talking about in Shiva Baby, it it speaks from a very very knowledgeable place, and I feel like there's not enough movies um, about that kind of thing. Um, certainly, well, certainly not movies about that kind of thing. Um, but um, but there's not there's not movies that speak from the place of experience, like what we're talking about in Shiva Baby and the New Romantic and Obvious Child. Like these are experiences that a lot of women have gone through, and yet don't exist enough in our art. Right. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, you're reminding me that it's been far too long since I've watched The Obvious Child. So thank you for the reminder. There you go. 
Um, I think my last companion film, we're talking about a lot of movies that we've talked about on other podcasts, but what can I say, folks? That's what happens when you're 200 and some odd shows into the career of a one particular podcast. My last one that I thought would make a good companion piece is from two years ago by uh, director Lulu Wong, um, The Farewell, starring Aquafina. You've seen that movie, right? I actually haven't, but it's no! like one. I know, I know. Okay. That's like a very fair reaction. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I listen. I, I envy you because you're in for a good time when you do finally, finally give it a go. And if you have Amazon Prime, it's on Amazon Prime right now, so you can double feature that okay, with uh, with uh, Evil Dead. If you, Evil Dead Two, if you want to double. Yeah. Feature. The commonality between the two is um, something we also see in movies like Bridesmaids, as a for instance, where these big life events within your family or your community find their way into your life when your life really isn't at a good place. You know what I mean? Like it wouldn't be that hard to go to a Shiva if you were just about to make partner in your firm and just buying a mm-hmm. house, you know, the, 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 those, those kinds of things. But these things like the Shiva or the funeral or the wedding or the graduation, they find their way into your life when you've like just been laid off or just been dumped or both. And and that's kind of like where the farewell finds the character played by Aquafina. Like she is not in a good place personally. And yet she gets this news that her grandmother, the, 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 in, in her culture that called her Nai Nai, that Nai Nai is very sick. So she has to kind of go to this family event in China, you know, like it, it would be one thing to like go around the corner into back into the old neighborhood and do this, but she has to go across the globe and be present in all of these family functions when she doesn't have it all together. And I feel like that's something that a lot of us can relate to of having to go through these big um, events or these big life moments when our life really isn't all that pulled together. And we're seeing more of those stories too. Mm hmm. So. Yep, and very, very real, specifically for us millennials. No kidding. So for many, <laughs> many, <laughs> yeah. many different reasons. Um, I mean, yeah, if, if you haven't seen any of these movies or all of these movies, um, you are in for nothing but a good time. Um, and I'm really thankful that you recommended um, that, that first one to me as well. I'm going to make a point to try and track that one down. Um, and we hope that, you, you know, along with all these that you track down Shiva baby, because, um, these are all really good stories that really deserve to be seen. And it's kind of hard to, to kind of make sense of the noise these days when you have all these platforms that have all of these options available to you. It's like, where do you start beyond the splash page? So hopefully we've given you some ideas. Um, but that is episode 259 of the matinee cast. I'd really like to thank Lindsay for coming by. Come on back on Monday, May the 3rd for episode 260. Um, I'm not sure what we're going to talk about just yet. I am open to suggestions. We might talk about violation. Um, that's, that's making the rounds on demand right now. Um, but other than that, I'm open to any kinds of ideas. Uh, Lindsay's work can be found all over the place. Uh, Pajiba, whattowatch.com, CG Magazine. What do you got coming up that you want to plug? Ooh, I'm working on a few things, mostly reviews this month. So uh, keep your eyes out. Uh, I've got lots of film reviews coming out. I'm working on a project that I probably plugged so many times because of how long it has taken. Um, a little bit off the uh, regular film beat, I'm currently testing gaming and office chairs, which has been a really, really um, fun project. And as we're all working from home, I hope I can give you some good advice on that. Um, so stay tuned for that. My podcast, Pod in the Pendulum, we are doing Evil Dead right now. So if you like the sound of my voice, please come find me there. 
Um, and we'll be chatting about Evil Dead. And then we've got some really exciting stuff coming up for the summer that I'm pretty hyped to do. If people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? Yeah, Twitter is going to be the best place to find most of my work along with most of my internal monologue. It's at Smash Travis, S-M-A-S-H-T-R-A-V-E-S, like Traves. Um, and yeah, you should be able to find me there. Very nice. My site is thematinee.ca for more audio content. You can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them in the old familiar places, Google, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, and Apple, and some new places, TuneIn, Radio Public, CastBox, and Podchaser. Everything gives you ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on Shiva Baby can be left in the comments section of the site. You can email ryan at thematinee.ca, Twitter, I am matinee underscore CA, and then there's Facebook, facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Any final thoughts, Miss Travis? That's it. I'm really glad we spoke about this one because it's an awesome movie and I hope that lots of you check it out. For Lindsay, I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee.